Welcome to the How to Not Execute Your Strategy podcast. I'm your host, Tim Ohai. This series is dedicated to the biggest lessons learned from the people who own strategic execution, the senior leaders who live in the center of it. I wanted to end this first season strongly, and my guest today provides exactly that. Daniel Todd is the founder and CEO of Influence Mobile, an engagement platform that rewards customers for their loyalty. Influence Mobile is also one of the fastest growing companies in America with over 1,000% three-year growth. In addition to its growth, it's consistently recognized as a great place to work with no one leaving the company willingly since 2018. You may also find Daniel's leadership insights online as a contributing writer for both Inc. and Entrepreneur.com. Listen now as we explore how culture can either be the chokehold or the bedrock of your execution. Let's get to it. Dan, I'm so excited to talk with you today. We have been friends for a long time, but we haven't talked in a long time. So full disclosure, uh, Daniel and I uh, actually were college uh, floor mates, not roommates, and played on the same soccer team and uh, many, many moons ago when we both played soccer. And uh, he's now uh, my guest on how to not execute strategy and what to do about it. So here we go, Dan. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Tim. Uh, great to be here. I'm excited to chat about this topic. So I think it can help a lot of people. Fantastic. Um, let's let's dive right in. So it's always the first question is, you know, tell me about a time or a, a, a situation where you had a strategy that didn't go as planned. And what'd you learn from it? Sure. I would say the, the, the most impactful mistakes I've made are all around hiring people. And mm. so er, early in my career, I hired, uh, we were we were an internet sales product and we viewed ourselves all as tech guys. We had kind of a bit of a disdain for the concept of the used car salesman kind of person. Uh, and so we just assumed it was not a skill that we could uh, master. So we wanted to hire these people and we started to uh, we started to track down through a warm introduction, these folks that sold television advertising. And we interviewed them, we started talking to uh, referrals and really got very, very negative feedback that they mm. were kind of, you know, rude demeaning to people kind, kind of pushy yeah and kind of like your classic you know what i what i had viewed at the time as this like shystery sales people sure sure and instead of thinking those were yellow flags i'm almost like oh this might be the kind of people we need right oh wow because we thought we needed this kind of like sales edge right we didn't know i mean at this time this was my very first company i was late 90s and so we hired these people and they were horrible to deal with. Literally everybody couldn't stand working with them. And wow. so- You mean uh, internally, your own employees couldn't stand working with them. Yeah, we couldn't stand working oh. with them. They would, they would go uh, at the time, actually, you know, Keith Smith was yeah. the CEO of the company. A, a screw fell out of the chair of one of these people and he he got it out. He, he picked up off the ground, went and put it on the CEO's desk and was like, I need you to put this back in. Like he, he, they just treated everybody like they were the top. Wow. And everybody else was like their peons. And so, and I suppose in a world where their performance was amazing, we might've fallen into some kind of trap and been like, I guess this is what you got to do. Mm. But bad news was they were horrible at sales too. So <laughs> like I guess selling television ads 
in a to a captive audience is much easier than trying to sell a new technology product. So they couldn't sell anything. We'd go, we'd go wow. on calls. And clearly they were so offensive to the person who was pitching. And I remember uh, Keith and I were driving away and I was like, I bet you this guy thought that that went well. And he's like, there's no way. I'm like, oh, there's a way. So we call him up and we're like, you know, hey, so-and-so, I won't use his real name. Uh, how do you think that went? He's like, oh, amazing. He's for sure going to buy. I'm like, wow. It became clear that like they were living in their own fantasy world. Wow. To the point where eventually we were running out of money. Uh, they started putting through fraudulent uh, fake sales things to make it look like we were yeah padding uh, their pipeline yeah yeah and so but but i learned i learned two important lessons number one they weren't that good at salespeople. so like what they didn't what they did do is they never stopped contacting those people like literally they barrage these people and again i'm not meaning like 300 times but like seven eight nine ten times and so i'm like well, and then sometimes they actually got some, you know, some people to respond. So I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm learning two things. Number one, you don't have to be a complete, you know, jerk to be a salesperson. You just have to be persistent. Mm. So we were about out of money. And I told Keith, uh, hey, I'll, I'll take over for these guys. I can't, it can't be worse. Because I was kind of like the technical, <laughs> I was like the technical <laughs> project guy. So we'd go to New York, they'd pitch everybody. I'd yeah. hear the, what the client would say. They'd say, no, I won't do this. And I'd be like, well, what if we did blah, blah, blah? Would that fix your problem? And they're like, yeah, maybe. So then I'd come back and work with the product team and we'd make the product a little bit better. And so I'm like, I could, I could do that. And I can call them back up and say, we could do that. And so we ended up, again, we were completely out of money. We laid off everybody. And I remember this guy sitting in my office when I told him we were laying him off. And he's like, you should actually lay yourself off. You should be the one who's leaving. Wow. I'm the only person who can save this company. Wow. Thinking like, wow, this is, you know, and like I said, meantime, I hated coming to the office. Everybody hated coming to the office. And so, so we ended up letting him go. I took over the VP of sales role where we were doing like, I don't remember how much it was in the tens of thousands of dollars a month in revenue, not enough wow. to pay the bills. Wow. Uh, and I just did what I, again, to his credit, I did learn to be unrelenting. In yeah. With people because yeah. I always thought that was kind of rude. So you can follow up with people and not be rude. Yeah. And so I started doing that. And I think that was it was probably 2000, 2001. And by 2004, I hired our next VP of sales when we were doing $50 million in revenue. Wow. Over those years, I just learned be persistent, don't kind of be an a hole, and only hire people you want to work with. Right. And so, like, that, that's the lesson I've learned and, and kind of lived by is that. I used to always tell people like, if I could find a person who was a hundred percent cultural fit for your company, which I can explain what I mean by that. Yeah. Um, and they were only a 75% fit for the role, or you can invert that. I'd always take the person who was the better cultural fit because when you hire these people who are a little too big for their britches, they think they know everything that has always been the failures. Like even when we, we eventually had a successful company, we bring in these big experienced you know, senior executives, and they were always uh, very negative, negatively impactful to the culture, how they treated people. Uh, so we got to the point where like, if a, if a person came in, and they were rude to the receptionist, we just walked them, you know, they came in for an interview, we just walked them right back out the door. So it became very clear that like, for us, the best way to build a company was hire people of the same culture. And so I, I mentioned that 
And so what I've come to define as the culture that I like to operate in is a growth mindset person who has some mm -hmm. humility. They believe that they can learn more. They believe that everybody around them can learn more and that they're hungry to do so, right? Mm -hmm. And when I found that you take those people, and I don't care whether they're you know, college graduates, recent college graduates, or somebody who's been in the workforce for 20 years, that mindset, uh, if you can bring a group of people together of a similar mindset, I find that it's very, very positive environment to then execute strategy with. Let's. That's so good. The the a couple of things pop out to me. Um, I well, one of my first thoughts was those guys weren't sell sellers; they were something else, right? Yeah, you know, because if you're not serving, you're not selling, and selling is a noble profession when it's done well. It actually, it's it's an amazing profession. So, um, I can imagine your mindset just going into it was completely different than theirs, um, and therefore that changed the result. But the other thing that really gets me here is this idea that you you learned early the importance of culture, and then you've you've made that part of your DNA of how you operate. So that, and and I know you've 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 built and sold a few companies. That's kind of your your model is to get things going, and then great, and then you're a serial entrepreneur, if I could put it that way. Um, how do you tackle that? Because culture is it's the bedrock. It's also incredibly hard incredibly hard to architect because a lot of people kind of they they a get hired into a culture and it just exists and it might change if you have leadership change etc but even that's going to be minimal and it's also when you're building a company it's hard to make sure people fit because you need heads you need people to do a job and it's either leave that seat empty month after month after month or hire somebody and then they fit, but then your culture is going to evolve as a result of that person's contribution. And it's not bad. It's just different. So walk us through a little bit about what goes through your mind when you're trying to architect culture and also protect it and yeah. maybe even change it. Yeah. Well, I would say I view it so important that I do all the first interviews for every employee at our company. Mm. And that's very atypical from the other CEOs that I know most of the time they're at the end, right? Mm. And what I don't like about that is there are a lot of, I mean, there's not one good final all encompassing culture that works for every company, right? right. So there's one that works for me, uh, but, you know, I believe that there can be more command and control, you know, there's all these kind of classical yeah. Yeah. versions. Absolutely. So, uh, there can be great employees that are smart and can help your company that are not a good cultural fit that can get through the funnel to me. And at times at my, at my first company, I was more at the end and I'd end up vetoing people and it would really sour mm. the entire funnel, right? It mm. made people who like this person be unhappy. And so now like I view culture, especially call it the first hundred employees, super important. Like when you get to 200 or 300, it's still important, but it's, uh, there's a little bit more fluidity because there's lots more controls with lots of other people. But if you bring in a person who's who stands out from the culture and you're only 20 or 30 people, every time you hear that person talk, it's like breaking. We used to call, you know, the culture was this glass floor that we we're all standing on. If you let one person demean somebody or treat somebody poorly, they're just taking a hammer to that culture and then it spreads very quickly, right? Mm. So, so in, in this the second company that I've run now for 11 years, I just, I don't tolerate it at all. And so if a person is not a good cultural fit, 
we try to move them out of the organization, but I, in general, don't hire them to begin with, right? And so what, what ends up happening is, and we did some like personality tests, is we end up having people who value relationships more so than their own individual accomplishments, right? Okay. So as we started, you know, and I didn't really know what, you know, 15 years ago, I, I told, I would tell people culture was important, but I didn't know what that meant. And so this last couple of years, I've been writing articles and researching it. And it really comes down to this uh, growth mindset that Carol Dweck, the author yeah. wrote. About. Yeah. Like, it just kind of blew my mind that like, that's the kind of person I want. And generally that kind of person has a humility that works, makes it easier for people to work with. And so I primarily look for that. I bring people in. Uh, if they, I don't care that they're perfect on the technology side. If I feel like they're a cultural fit, then I put them through the rest of the interview funnel. And then other people decide whether they're technologically capable to do the job. Uh, I just care that they fit and that everybody will enjoy working with them. Wow. That's really, that, that's not only really powerful, but it's also really insightful. Um, I, I think of so many folks who get involved at the end and, and you putting it to the front makes such a huge difference to your point, not only in who's actually being interviewed, but also just the, the, the reaction of your own teammates of like, oh my gosh, Daniel's messing with us again, as opposed to, okay, this has got Daniel's stamp of approval. Let's move this thing forward. We know we're off to a good start. So that's got to be actually probably empowering to folks in the interview experience because they know they've already got your approval. So that they're like, oh, I'm here to actually augment or even enhance his decision so that, and if I have to veto, I can veto, but I, that means I've got support from the CEO. That's that's crazy cool. Yeah. Um, it How does, do you make sure your leaders also think this way? So that it's not just Daniel. Well, I would say each one of them was hired because they fit this mold, right? Mm. And so uh, for the most part, uh, I don't even, it's not even like we have to necessarily state this. Although I will tell you the one thing I was going to mention is uh, we recently brought in a very close friend of mine as our VP of engineering. I've worked with him in the past. Uh, mm. And so he wanted to start doing some of these first interviews just because we're getting to a size. And I'm like, well, I generally, I do, I do trust him and he has done several, but even there are just a few times or even just like one or two, like things that might've been a yellow flag for me uh, got, or maybe even like a red flag got past him. And so I'm, I'm now the second person. I'm already like, mm, I think this was a mistake. And so hmm. even people that you are really, really in sync with, might not just pick up on the exact thing. So I don't I don't know how this scales because obviously when I was at a company where we got into the hundreds and hundreds of employees, we hired, I think, like a, something like 70 or 80 people uh, in half a year. So it was like, mm. hun- I mean, so many interviews, I could yeah. never win them all. Yeah. So I, I, I maybe, I don't know if I'm struggling with it yet, but I can imagine that I need to get better at uh, discussing it. And so that's, a lot of these articles I've been writing uh, are focused on educating my employees more so than like, you know, I write for Inc and Entrepreneur more so than like, I mean, I do want to help other people, but I want my employees and the team to kind of read those and let them sink in uh, as like, here's how we are trying to operate. And even articles, you know, even, you know, uh, operations like you and I are doing right now is designed to help people, you know, get on the same page from that perspective. That's awesome. So um, I'm just checking our time. I want to I want to dovetail into the second part of our conversation, but we can come back and forth and just kind of cross that line. 
what are two or three things then that you want every person in the organization, um, they could be a skill set, it could be a mindset that they need to have in order to be able to execute your strategy really well, because it's, it's, it, it is not just protect the culture, it's get stuff done. Right. It's right. it's the culture becomes a major, major part of getting stuff done, but we still have to get stuff done. Yep. I would say the one of the things that are is most important to me, and it, it maybe it's just so bedrock, it's it's an obvious thing, but <laughs> honesty slash transparency, right? Mm -hmm. That when I when I hire a person, I view them as my responsibility and my like if they ultimately don't work out it's my fault, right? Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't blame them. And so I don't need them to hide stuff from me. Right. And so I try to be very transparent. And the key with transparency is it means nothing if you're transparent on the good stuff because yeah. everybody shares the good stuff. So you got to be transparent on the bad stuff, which means when people make mistakes, they need to, they need to know that you're not just waiting there, you know, with the whammy stick to hit them. They need to feel a level of trust and they can have that level of trust if they know that you care about them, that you will treat them fairly. And so like something to do, I mean, my general principle is, you know, treat others the way you would want to be treated uh, and do that with a level of honesty and transparency that makes them very comfortable to know where you're headed. So whether you're trying to release a new product or go into a new market or whatever you're trying to do, you know, you, you that's the goal. Like you talk about, you need to have a strategy, but giving people kind of like this emotional safety that you've talked about. Mm. Uh, is very important so that if there is something that comes up that they feel uncomfortable about you've laid the foundation of, of trust so that they'll share with you and maybe that's again they don't agree with the strategy or they've made a mistake i mean we've had mistakes that cost us a million dollars here in the last couple of years and you know i'm certain that early on there was some level of fear to admit to that but you know you you try to look at what caused the issue and was it a reasonable mistake that, you know, or was it something easily prevent, preventable? Um, but I would say that that the honesty and transparency, kind of the base level, and then proper communication, right? And so mm. can't execute a strategy if everybody's not on the same page. But if you're being transparent with people, even in the days where, you know, it wasn't that many years ago, 2017, 2018, uh, our company was very touch and go in terms of whether it was going to survive. We had this big partnership with Facebook, and they... Uh, we're going to change the rules and the way they operated, and it was going to substantially negatively impact us. I remember them calling me, and I was sick to my stomach. <clears throat> and you want to like run away and not share that information, but it's that that time mm. when it's most important to share with people, even if it triggers them to be scared, right? Which is a dangerous place because you don't want you know the fear is you're going to tell people they're all going to go quit because they're scared of what's going to happen, and then you're yeah. all stuck alone. And, and you have to be obviously smart about it, but you can't just go from no trust to like radical transparency. But I had built up enough uh, trust in, in our strategy going forward that I told them like, here's what's happening. Here's what we're going to do, right? Here's our financial situation. Here's what's going to get us through. And like, I put together a coherent plan and they, they you know, were all, you know, thankfully willing to stick through it. And we made it through from, you know, again, not profitable company in 2018 to highly profitable growing, you know, doing 50, $60 million a year in revenue. Uh, and all of those people, like we haven't had a, an employee actively leave the company that on their own volition yeah. since 2018. Wow. So, 
Wow. Uh, six years without anybody quitting, uh, which I, I, I believe comes from this transparency and honesty and treating people fairly. That's awesome. So there's so much there. I want to, I want to slow down a little bit because there's so much to dig into. You, you've got the transparency, but the reason you have the transparency is all the benefits that transparency opens the door to. So you mentioned trust. Um, you, you didn't say the word, but you mentioned accountability. Uh, you, you mentioned loyalty. Uh, and, and even you, you got all over the idea of uh, we need to make great decisions. And that transparency is ultimately connected to making those great decisions. And as you and I have briefly talked, you know, that's my whole angle is execution is about decision making. So how do we help people make great decisions? When, when you're looking at um, the kind of transparency that you're describing, and you're trying to build that as a leader to make sure there, how do you, is it just about no consequences? Is it, is it, is it simply a case of like, look, I need to be transparent. There's no consequence. Just be transparent. Consequences come as a different scenario or a different dialogue. Um, or are you, are you taking a different angle? How do you, how do you build that tension? Because people are going to be afraid of being, how transparent do you want me to be? Because it, it, I I may look bad and then I may get the whammy stick. And you said I won't get the whammy stick, but uh, my previous history tells me I will. Right. Well, I think it depends. So there's there's different answers on whether or not, you know, so like in the very early days of 2018, for us, being transparent meant I was sharing information that could very well make people uncomfortable. And they were, they they did not want to take, or they were not as comfortable taking the same financial risk as I was, mm. and they would just quit and go to work someplace else. But under the mantra of treat other people the way you'd want to be treated, I wouldn't want to force somebody by withholding information to be working for me in, in, in a way that would compromise their life, right? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I hoped that if I did tell them and they were concerned, they would at least just, they would tell me and we would figure it out, right? Because like, we were a very small team at that point in time with six or seven people. Mm. And so uh, I, I always had a plan B. Like, I remember there was a guy that worked for me and he's like, how could you ever operate the company with so few people? I'm like, dude, I started the company with one person. Like, yeah, yeah. Me, and then I hired my co-founder. And so we, we're at two. So with that mindset, I never viewed like that it was impossible to kind of like, pull back into like this self-sustained mode. So, you know, I shared it with people knowing that there was the opportunity for them to leave, but I was also giving them a credible path forward. Uh, and that's, you know, in some ways that's the scariest position, right? Cause I'm sharing information can, that can have negative consequences to me. Uh, and so on the reverse, right? So like when we uh, had this issue last year, we actually had two years in a row, we had very substantial technical technology issues that cost us hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, it's not uh, a surprise, like the revenue is going down. And so you can't necessarily hide. So we go right. we look up the issues. And, you know, again, generally, people are like, I mean, there's not too many people working on the same thing. So I know where the situation came from. And and I'm not, I, I want to dig down into it. So I'm saying like, hey, walk me through the decision-making yeah. process that led to this, right? And so uh, there, it is true that there could have been an outcome if this, if a person was just completely uh, belligerent or not, you know, not making sound business decisions that I believe would make them an incompetent future employee, 
then yes, that, the outcome might have been I let them go. Even if I did, I'd take care of them. I, I we let go of people, you know, fairly consistently throughout the year. So it's not like you know people don't leave on their own accord, but we do let mm -hmm. mm -hmm. people go. But we always treat them again the way I would want to be treated. So we give them significant severance to give them to a new job. So when we when I'm digging in, I'm sure there's a level of fear early on, but I'm really not trying to cast blame. I'm trying to understand how it happened, how we can prevent it in the future. Both times they were, it wasn't like it was impossible to have prevented, but the amount of effort to have prevented it would, would have been business-wise un, unreasonable to have assumed, right? Yeah. So, so I dug into that. I was like, yep, I see where your mistake was. I see the decision that went behind that. There was no you know, laziness or, you know, malfeasance. It was just a mistake. Here's how it happened. Here's how we're going to prevent it. And then we move on. Right. So, so there's in the middle of all that, you had plan B thinking in place, which that's rare. I'll, I'll be, I'll be blunt. Um, I've done quite a bit of work with helping companies, big companies figure out how to do better strategic execution. And it's amazing how often people do not have plan B thinking in their head. And you even approach the concept of accountability and the concept of transparency intuitively with plan B thinking and, and assuming it's not an incompetence issue or an ethical issue. It's just somebody made a mistake. Let's learn from it. Let's fail forward. All those wonderful things. I like the way Pat Lencioni talks about, you know, are you sweating? I'm sweating too. Let's let's. And if, and if it happens over and over and over again, then we have a competency problem, but if it's just happening, it's happening. And so you can separate from the thing, uh, the, the consequential kind of fear, but that plan B thinking is also empowering you to be able to have a more open, more um, relaxed approach to figure it out because you've got a plan B. That's okay. You're not, the execution is not one path. It's different paths. It will still get there. How do you, is that, I'm just going to throw it out. Is plan B also something you want everybody in the organization to have? Is that kind of plan B thinking? I wouldn't say that that, uh, it's probably more of an intuitive thing. I, I, I certainly haven't thought about it, but I, I generally think you know, what, you know, I, I try to think six months ahead, like, where do I want to be six months from now, right? It's hard. I mean, obviously, I might think two years from now, but it's much more. Oh, the economy is everything is too psycho. Goodness, we used to think yeah. three years ahead. And now it's like, yeah, you're lucky if you can figure out six months. Yeah. So when I think where I want to be in six months, and how, you know, it's a very different scenario when we were a pre profitable company, because you're thinking like, what's the story I have to tell? Mm. How do I get investor confidence? Like all these different kinds of things versus now it's like, we're profitably making money. Let's not blow our, you know, shoot ourselves in the foot. Mm. Um, so I'm always walking back from that six month scenario, thinking about what are the biggest ways things can, can go wrong. And because I focus on the team so much, it's generally around people. Mm. So you, if you have, if you believe you're at risk of losing an employee, you better have a backup plan, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, I I like to run a company with the assumption that every employee, including myself, is replaceable, right? And if they're not replaceable, it's my responsibility to get something in place to make that at least feasible, right? Okay. So if that's the case, then you, back to your point of being comfortable, if you know that you can have a plan B around personnel, which is the most important part of being successful, uh, then you're kind of covered, 
right? And so then it makes it so that you really can care about the employee. You can care about their success. Like I said, I view it as if I hired you and I believed I gave you the vote of confidence, then, then there's a, only a couple of ways that this has gone bad. Either I haven't given you the right tools, the right training, the right education, the right support. Like it's either yeah. my yeah. or you're just making bad choices, right? Mm -hmm. and if you're mm -hmm. making bad choices, generally I'm gonna get in there as early as I can. I'm gonna talk to you about those bad choices. We're gonna talk about why they're happening and I'm gonna try to give you a plan and we're gonna agree. You know, here we're at today and here's where you need to be. Are you yeah. committed to getting there? And I'll, I'll tell people, like usually I'll come to an employee and say, here's the deal. Things aren't working out perfectly. I have confidence that you can get to this place if you're willing to do it. So here's here's my pitch to you. I will give you six weeks severance today and you can just walk away. That should be giving you plenty of time to get another job. Or you have to dig in and improve and get to this level. Uh, and if you do, awesome. All is in a good spot. But if you don't, you may only get a two-week severance opportunity. And so giving people that like more comfortable option yeah. Really, um, I think pushes them to make the decision of whether or not they think they can make it or not. Right. And almost every single person, I don't, I don't remember everybody off the top of my head, but almost every single person who's taken the option to stick around has done the work to, to perform. Like usually it becomes a self-fulfilling cycle. If you're willing yeah. to commit and risk not taking six weeks severance, you're generally going to do the work. And I see a lot of great success and some of our best employees are people who've gone through that process, even though no one likes that initial sure. feedback. Wow. They, they dig in and they become awesome. And then of course I have to have a plan, right? So if they do say, I'll take the six week option, I go awesome. Like that, you know, like instead of me futzing around for four weeks and then giving them two weeks severance, I'd rather just give them time, give them yep. time. You know, I know what I'm going to do in the meantime and then we go do it. Wow. So I want to go back to the question then. Do, do you think plan B thinking is something you want everybody in the organization to have? So as they approach the problems that their their scope of responsibility, you know, kind of has to tackle, do you want them also thinking, okay, if this doesn't work, what am I going to do? I mean, I, the, the, it seems like the smart answer to that is yes, but I don't know how practical it is. I've never thought about it. Like, I, Fair think, enough. That's, I think that's a great question. I would think yes, but as an individual contributor, you know, there's not necessarily the same kind of like, uh, maybe there's not as much need for a, a plan B, right? It's like, yeah. you know, I'm hired to do this job. I'm doing this job. I just need to go do it. If, you know, I don't know what plan B would be for a lot of people. Well, it's it's going to be a way lower. So when I, when I do this work with with clients, um, I'll, I'll always ask, are there any veterans in the room? Hands go up. Not a lot, but hands will go up. I go, did, were you ever given a mission that didn't have a plan be attached? No, never, never. Why? Because you hit reality and stuff is going to happen. So your mission may be just get to that point on the map, but you have a plan B to get to that point on the map. And we're empowered to make our own decisions because our command knows and understands you know, we, we designed in a vacuum, you go do it in real time. So um, that was, that was their thing. So it, my, and I'll, and I'll be real transparent here. I, my, my bias is that plan B thinking is critical. Um, 
but I hadn't thought of it as a, an actual, like as in our dialogue, as a hiring criteria. Like I want you to be a plan B kind of person. And it could be, you know, hey, I've got this meeting scheduled with a client. And if it doesn't happen, what am I going to do? I, I, I've got a plan B ready to go. Otherwise, you get into the whole do loop of, hey, Daniel, uh, the meeting didn't happen. What should, What do you want me to do? And now your email's filling up with people asking for you to create their plan B when they should have had it up front and said, hey, I'm going to go to plan B. Let me know if you have a problem with it. But this is already my, and now things stay in motion and it minimizes the amount of involvement you have to personally uh, volunteer for. Does that, does that resonate? Does that make sense when I say it that way? It, it makes sense. I mean, I'm happy. There might be some more of that that just is a byproduct of the growth mindset because I don't, mm. I don't seem to have, you know, like when I give people like we're very focused on what the outcomes are, yeah. what people are trying to do. And I give them kind of the freedom to do the plan that they want. Right. We try to tell them it's not always the, it's the what, not the how. Right. And so yeah. uh, there, there are some times, depending on your level of skill that you get a little bit more direction on the how, but for the most part, people, we try to be very clear with the you know transparency and communication about the plan. And so I'd like to believe with growth mindset that if people try plan A, they're just kind of falling back and trying multiple things because I don't spend a lot of time helping people figure out their next step. Now the managers might, and, but I think there's a culture of accountability when you're looking yeah. at metrics and we try to reward everybody, uh, you know, in, in, with either stock options or revenue share plans. So like everybody's part of when the company wins, you win. And so yeah. then I think that that maybe enforces plan B thinking without it being explicitly focused on. That's awesome. Listen, um, so just I'm going to recap just because we haven't explicitly said, but we're, we've got full on transparency. You've talked about growth mindset are two critical things. And we kicked around this idea of plan B thinking, but though I think those are three big takeaways anyone who's listening to this dialogue can really think about. And and I would go so far as to say, you know, hold the mirror up and say, are you building that into your business? Yeah. Daniel, it's been a pleasure. Uh, it's it's so good to catch up with you, and and I'm really grateful that you're sharing from from literally in the middle of the the playing field um, your perspective of of how you actually get stuff done, and it's been a delight. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, sir. Okay. That was one of my favorite conversations. Daniel threw out so many great ideas and best practices. I'm curious, what are your biggest takeaways, and how are you going to use them? My three biggest takeaways are only hire people who will fit your culture. Culture is more important than proficiency because it drives how you execute. Hire for a growth mindset. When people have a growth mindset and value relationships over individual accomplishment, the capacity of the whole team is elevated. Execution then becomes an extension of that growth capacity. Honesty and transparency are absolutely critical for execution. People need to be confident that they can share even bad news so that the right decision can be made. No one should be afraid of being honest and open. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with at least one person and leave me a review on whatever platform you downloaded this podcast. Your feedback is invaluable to me. And Imua, onward and upward.